Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive help supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hey, folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Rochelle King. And I witness all the other girls around me at this school blossoming into their bodies. And puberty just made me so much hairier. (laughs) That and more. But before that, Risk is supported by Squarespace, the simplest way to create a compelling website. From the strange to the downright beautiful, great stories define us. And you should tell yours... With simple tools and templates, Squarespace helps you capture your story with a captivating website. Start your free trial today. Visit squarespace.com risk. Squarespace, build it beautiful. And one more thing, mailing and shipping are a routine part of running your business. It's important to keep operations going, but if you're making constant trips to the post office, you can get rid of that routine. There's a more convenient way, stamps.com. Stamps.com brings all the services of the post office to your desk. You can buy and print official U.S. postage using your own computer and printer for any letter, any package, any class of mail, and just Hand it to your mail carrier. You won't waste valuable time going to the post office. So you can focus on what really matters, growing business. We use Stamps.com at Risk and the Story Studio, and we love it. And right now, you can sign up for Stamps.com and use our promo code RISK for this special offer. It's a four-week trial plus a $110 bonus offer, including postage and a digital scale. So don't wait. Go to Stamps.com before you do anything else. Click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in RISK. That's Stamps.com. Enter RISK. Now here's the show.
Hello, kids. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison, and this is Graham, or no, Grant Green behind me now. Graham Green is a novelist. Grant Green is the great jazz organist. We're calling today's episode Against the Grain. These are three stories from people who wish they had stood up to someone or a group of people who are kind of pushing them in a certain direction or did at least a couple instances here where the storyteller said, nope, (laughs) instead of your way, I'll take the highway. This is one of those episodes of Risk. I love these episodes where the, the three stories have incredibly different tones, you know, three very different feeling stories. And we're going to start with an outrageously ridiculous one. Joshua Grinnell first did the show in 2011 when we first went to San Francisco Sketchfest. He is one of the most legendary figures in the San Francisco underground scene, drag performer, filmmaker. You know him as Peaches Christ. Here he is now at the San Francisco Sketchfest 2016 with a story we call The Filthiest People Alive. When I heard the theme was lunacy, I thought, yeah, I can do it. I'll do it. Uh, so uh, some of you might know that I perform as Peaches Christ, as Kevin said, and, and I do movie tributes, and I'm a filmmaker, and I dress in women's clothes and wild outfits and put on outrageous shows over at the Castro Theater, but that wasn't always the case. I actually grew up in boring Maryland, uh, where I went to Catholic school, And I felt like a total outcast. I didn't feel like any of the other kids. And in my sort of uh, wiener dog years, I'd say seventh and eighth grade, when it was really at its worst, you guys remember seventh and eighth grade? Um, I uh, was really jealous of this kid who got to go up the street to Baltimore and be in a movie. And uh, came back and told me, you know what was weird about the movie? The mom is played by a man. And I thought, what the hell's that? And the movie was called Hairspray. And, uh, and that was enough for me to figure out what the fuck that was all about. So I went to Mom's video on Kent Island in the Eastern Shore and found Pink Flamingos and rented Pink Flamingos. Now, if you're not familiar with the movie Pink Flamingos, this is John Waters' earlier film where he became very famous for making this outrageous midnight movie where a couple... Uh, the woman played by Mink Stoll was competing with Divine, a fi- very you know overweight drag queen, outrageously dressed, to see which of them was the filthiest person alive. So at, at my seventh grade mind was fucking blown. You know, I watched people have sex with a live chicken between them, where the head broke off and rolled away. Yeah, this is Pink Flamingos. You should check it out. <laughs> Uh, You know, Mink Stoll's character kept women trapped in a cellar where they were impregnated by her butler and they sold the babies to lesbians who were desperate. Uh, Divine, of course, famously eats dog shit at the end of the movie. Oh, also at the end of the movie, a guy for Divine's birthday party gets on his back 
throws his legs up in the air and his asshole sings. So, um, and that singing asshole will forever be emblazoned in my brain, that seventh grade brain. And I knew then that my life had changed forever. You know, this was it, you know? There was a world for me somewhere. I think it was in Baltimore, just up the street. I recognized things in the movie, you know, that were part of my, um, you know, family upbringing. Like, you know, oh my God, that's near my aunt's house, you know? So it really blew my mind to think that these freaks, the Dreamlanders as they were called, were, were just up the road making this kind of cinematic trash. And I knew that I wanted to be part of something like that. I knew that I wanted to you know, find that kind of lunacy. So jump forward a bunch of years, I survived Maryland Catholic High School. I went to college, I, I made a lot of friends. I made a movie in college called Jizz Mopper at Penn State. <laughs> Uh, which the school didn't really appreciate. And uh, I started dabbling in drag. I actually made my drag debut in that senior thesis film. And a week after graduating, I moved here to San Francisco. And, uh, and so it, arriving in San Francisco, it was like 1996. The city was incredible. A new cabaret club called Tranny Shack had just started. I started performing there. And you know, that's really where I found my people, you know, where I found my friends and stuff. And fast forward a few years from there, I started hosting a midnight movie series called Midnight Mass. And I was doing this as Peaches and, and celebrating cult movies. And finally, it was time to do the Holy Grail and screen Pink Flamingos. And I knew that the pre-show had to be wild. Now, I held off on doing Pink Flamingos for years because I was intimidated. You know when you love something so much, you're like, eh, I don't want to do it yet. Um, I had done some of the other films, but never Pink Flamingos. So we decided, my friends and I, that we were going to have a public contest in San Francisco for the filthiest person alive. <laughs> you know, just like the movie. But of course, in the movie, it's all pretend. You know, they're actors or whatever. But I decided to put an ad in the Bay Guardian... And, uh, and the, to rent a room over at the newly opened LGBT center right here on Market Street. It was brand new, but I didn't tell them what the room, why I was renting it. Um, American Idol was brand new, so that should tell you how long ago this was. It was like 2002 or three or something. So we set up a table, and me and my drag queen friends, Martini and Hecklina, sat behind the table, and we rigged the room with cameras, and we put up all these cameras, and we had open auditions for the filthiest person alive. And we actually staged some stuff, because I was afraid, like, well, what if we film this whole thing and we don't have, you know, anything um, worth using? So we, we sort of staged it, 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 and we were surprised when people actually started showing up, you know, like strangers, people we didn't know. And I actually got kind of nervous. Like, I hope we don't get in trouble. Um, and the first person who came in, you know, he picked his nose and ate a booger. And, you know, Hecklina was like yelling at him, like, you think that's filthy? That's not fucking filthy. This is filthy. Watch this. And she stood up and lifted up her skirt and then I rimmed her ass. And like, when I came away, you know, I'd shit around my mouth. And um, Martini actually vomited in a trash can and then then I went and ate the vomit and you know and so we were like we're tributing pink flamingos and uh, and so that's kind of how the day started and um, we watched people come in and roll around on glass we watched someone came in and like took Martini and threw her on the floor and like sexually assaulted her and you know this was like our work day that day was this film and um, actually one 
woman who was part of our um, costuming team, uh, Tria, I guess I'll use her name, I just did, uh, and it's one of those names nobody else has, so sorry. Um, she came in and she had a pet bird who was so sweet and she knew her bird so well that she actually knew when the bird was going to take a shit. And so we were like, what's she going to do with Boo Boo? And all of a sudden she went like this, lifted it above her head, opened her mouth, and the bird shit. It dropped into her mouth and slid down her throat. You could actually see her throat kind of moving. Luckily, someone was there to push in on the camera. This is all on film. We'll have to share it with you later. Um, And we thought, oh, my God, we have a winner. And then Renteca came in. Now, Renteca was like a seven-foot-tall drag queen. She comes in the room, she puts down a boombox, she hits play, and like the sweetest Stepford Wives music starts playing. And then this nervous guy comes in. I don't know how well she knew him, but he was very, very nervous. And she pulls down his pants, and he proceeds to pee in her mouth. Um, while she's kind of dancing around and stuff. But she's not swallowing the pee. She has a big purse, by the way. So she um, takes the uh, purse and pulls out an enema bottle. And then releases the urine into the enema bottle, then takes the enema bottle and administers it to herself and holds it. While then, scooping out ice cream she had packed in her purse into a bowl before squatting over the bowl and then releasing the um, urine syrup, which was now brownish because it was like a real enema happening. You didn't have to smell it. You know, we were in the room, and it was a long day, and the ice cream actually steamed. You could see steam rising up. And then, for her finale, she lapped it into her mouth, you know, like smiling and dancing around. And so these were our auditions. Um, So for the actual live event, we played the video, you know, like the TV show, and our show was called Filth Idol. And then Brinteca came out, and she won, and she performed, and she did some number where she um, pulled anal beads out of her ass and threw them in the audience, and it was pretty fabulous. But um, it was the video that was really legendary. And years later, or maybe a year or so later, the actual Mink Stoll came and did a show with us. So we got to work with Mink Stoll. And then a few years after that, my idol, John Waters, came and did a show with us, and he'd heard about this pre-show. And I think he was even impressed by it to some degree. And a few years go by, and John and Mink and I, believe it or not, become friends. And, you know, I work with them more regularly. And very surreal for the kid who grew up in Maryland and dreamed of even just discovering them, uh, that I get to work with them. And maybe eight years after that first Filth Idol, we decided to do it again. So... We have another competition, and this one wasn't as fabulous. Like, I remember um, some kids went to the women's room and they pulled out the um, wastebasket and threw tampons into the audience (laughs) and stuff like that. And I was kind of like, eh, it's sort of cheap, you know. (laughs) That's no, um, you know, ice cream sundae a la Renteca. So Renteca shows up again because she doesn't want to give up the title of filthiest person alive. And she's an older queen now with a successful career doing other things, but there she was. And she had a kiddie pool and um, she got in it and proceeds to do a lip sync while these two guys pee on her and they're urinating. And it was actually, believe it or not, quite beautiful because the way the light hit it, you could see the urine kind of fluttering off her eyelashes and 
kind of mixing with her makeup, and she was so happy about it. But while the number was happening, I smelled shit. Like, total shit. You know when you smell it and you're like, there's no doubt about it. There's shit nearby. Um, And I'm like, standing there as Peach is thinking, like, I don't want to be around when the shit happens. Like, I love pink flamingos, but maybe I have a limit, you know? The number ends, and there was no shit. So I'm like, what the fuck? Another number happens. I'm backstage with Renteca. I'm like, what the fuck was that shit smell? So what happened was, this one bear was really nervous and didn't want to do the peeing that she was kind of forcing him to, and he drank a lot of water beforehand so that he'd be able to go. We got out on the stage, and when it was time for him to pee, he couldn't pee. So he just pushed as hard as he could. And a turd came out, and it was just sitting there the whole time, like, you know, in his underwear. Which, to me, was the best part of the number, you know? Here we are celebrating Pink Flamingos, and he accidentally shit himself, and then apparently left kind of in tears. He was so embarrassed about it, because he had to shit in his underwear. And I have to say that it was around that time in my life that I realized all my dreams were coming true. You know, like, that young kid who dreamed of someday meeting people, like the, uh, the crazy people in, in Pink Flamingos who created that movie. It's like, oh my God, it happened. I just had to come to San Francisco. You know, that was, that was what needed to happen. And recently... I have to tell you this little kind of addendum about it. I went home to Maryland to visit my family for Christmas, you know, like a couple weeks ago. And I was invited to the John Waters Christmas party that's at his home every year. So I went, of course, and it was amazing. And at some point at the end of the night, John said to me, here's so-and-so, and I met the man, and he looked familiar. And we're talking, and we're chatting, and John's looking at me, and he says you know who that is? And I say, no. And he leans over and he goes, it's the singing asshole. (laughs) And there he was, right there. And I gave him a hug and asked him if he'd come to San Francisco and do a show with us. And and he said he would think about it. (laughs) So um, I, I really wanted to share that with you tonight because I did dream of a world where I'd be surrounded by lunatics, and it has happened here in this wonderful city, by the way. Thanks so much. This is Risk. This is Little Richard behind me now, a song featured in Pink Flamingos. Oh my gosh, someone pitched us another story 
this week. This woman saying that John Waters movies saved her life uh, for the exact same reason <laughs> that Joshua was talking about here. I remember I was in the seventh grade. I used to take the city bus downtown into Cincinnati uh, to the Moviola, which was a place that would show grindhouse movies, cult movies, art house movies all the time. It's my favorite place in the world. To see Polyester by John Waters, and it was... <laughs> It was in Odorama, which meant that you got a little scratch and sniff card. And when someone would fart, you were, you know, told to scratch and sniff a particular little sticker. And then, oh my goodness, I had to bring all my friends the next weekend. Anyway, what an honor that would be, if you can imagine, if we could have John Waters share a story on the show one day. That would be something. Now, our next two storytellers are brand new at this. They've never done this sort of storytelling before. In a little bit, we're going to hear from Rochelle King, who did an extraordinary job sharing her story at the live show we did in Houston, Texas, quite recently. But before that, a fan of the show who emailed us because he heard that we were looking for stories from war vets. Fascinating very bold story he shared with us uh, this is jesse martinez from fresno california now with a story we call he's my brother saw a second jet coming from the west and it smashed right into the second building now we're all standing out we're staring at the building all of us uh, in horror yeah it's the only way to describe it horror sadness and disgust you talked about fear and being scared and what next and feelings two, of vulnerability two huge planes crash into the world trade center what's going to happen next Mr. Russo, thank you very much for talking with us. As we look back up at the World Trade Center, and I know you can see it better with helicopters, but you can see it from the ground here as well. My world was shattered on September 11th. I was only in seventh grade. I was getting ready for school, and uh, I remember looking on the TV, and it's one hell of a thing to see the towers burning and not even understanding what it meant. You see the little black dots falling from the sky, and I didn't understand that those were people. My mom walked by. I remember she just looked at me. She just shook her head and said it was awful, but I didn't even understand what was awful. We went to school and then we just watched what was going on in the news the whole time in class. They didn't talk to us about what was going on or what it meant or who did it or anything like that. We were just watching these screens of towers falling and people flying out of the fucking sky. I'm shaking just thinking about it. It sort of ended my childhood that day. So the next few years I just watched the news. I mean, I was horrified and scared, but I couldn't I couldn't look away. It changed me. It gave me a sense of purpose that I didn't have yet. Maybe I shouldn't have had it at that age, but I wanted to fucking kill these fucking Muslim fucking terrorists. And so in 2010, I left. And I left to kill. 
I was angry before September 11th and I was angry for various reasons afterwards with my life and how it was going and leaving for the army was a dream for me. My father is a habitual drug user and my mother left him when I was five. And then my sister died when I was in high school. I was definitely angry already, so it's nothing the army gave me or what uh, terrorists uh, did that day. I didn't want to be some career soldier. I thought that I could be used as a tool to kill as many as I could, and I wanted to kill as many as I could. I was solely prepared to die, and in fact, I thought that might be the only death that people would remember me for. I was on a, a lunch break from my grocery store job, and I, I went to the army recruiter. I didn't know what I wanted to be. I thought maybe I could be one of those uh, machine door gunners uh, on a helicopter. And he told me I couldn't, so then I was just thinking of infantry. And the recruiter told me, well, check out the cavalry scouts before you make a final decision. And I watched the video, and I was, I was unsure. And then he said, well, you're going to be able to kill a lot of people if you're a cavalry scout, and you won't be able to do that if you're in the infantry. And so I said, all right, let's do it. So about three and a half months into deployment, it wasn't what I had anticipated. Uh, the Taliban, they weren't coming out to fight on, on the terms and that I had wanted. They're only leaving IEDs and not really any gunfire. And I was bored. I was bored. Uh, there was nothing to do. You just sit around when you're not on mission and you're jacking off, you're exchanging pornography, you're smoking cigarettes, you're working out, you're sleeping, you're eating, you're shitting. I didn't feel like I was doing what I was assigned to do or what I should be doing. I felt as though I was being wasted and our time was being wasted. So any sort of distraction was a godsend. We would exchange videos and porn files off of our laptops and external hard drives. This one day, uh, we call him Smith. He was in our troop. Smith was a specialist and he was a gunner and uh, I didn't particularly like him the first time I met him. He didn't rub me in the right way. So Smith gave his laptop to a couple of my friends. Before he did, he had thrown away something in the trash bin. And so my friends, they were browsing the laptop for porn and stuff. And then they remembered, like good scouts, that they had to check what was in that trash bin that he had left there. And so they opened it up and they found a video file. It was a webcam. And all you could see was the neck down of a man and he is completely naked. And he starts putting condoms on random items you would find in the room. Shampoo bottles, the case that you would put a toothbrush in, the toothbrush, then other things that are more specific, dildos and butt plugs. And he put condoms on all these things and then he started putting him up his ass. And uh, <laughs> they were laughing. They were having a good old time. And then they realized, wait a minute, that chair looks a lot like the chair we had in the hallway in Germany. 
And so now they're really interested. And this is a pretty long video, so they start skipping around to see if they can... This guy ever shows his face. And towards the end, the climax, I guess you could say, he has a bat. And he puts the larger end of the bat in his ass. And they are just roaring with laughter. And before the video ends, he gets up from the chair and he turns off the webcam, exposing his face. And it's Smith. In a couple of days, everyone around the fob knows about Smith and his bat. And uh, we're writing Batman logos in the bathroom stalls. We're calling up on the net, talking about baseball and Batman. And everybody knows. Everybody knows except for Smith. But then when he does find out, it ends up being one of those moments where you can't take it back. And he realizes to what extent he's been alienated by us. He is uh, extremely angry and uh, understandably very hostile to us in both words and actions. We're at the picnic table outside the Chew. The Chew is where we sleep. Smith walks by and he's he overhears us talking about him. He doesn't walk over, but he starts shouting at us. My friend told him, shut the fuck up. Go stick another baseball bat up your ass. And they get in a shouting match and uh, eventually Smith just walks away. So it ends up being almost a month after the video is out that Smith actually talks to the commanders and he goes above our own unit, above our captain, and he ends up talking to, I believe, the commander of the FOB we were at. I'm sorry, if I'm when I'm saying FOB, I'm saying forward operating base, which comprises many different units. And that's when they start giving out the um, orders and threats that anyone who talks about it, anyone who shares the video... It's going to be in trouble. But they were largely uh, ineffective because everyone's still laughing about it. So he's got another six months with us. He started eating lunch alone. Actually, his best friend was my roommate. And so I made no qualms telling him what I thought about Smith or the fact that he was hanging out with Smith. I'm sure I said something like, did he stick a bat up your ass or did you film it or something like that. Everyone was masturbating. Um, pretty much everyone in my platoon had a flashlight. You wouldn't believe how many dudes have gotten other dudes semen all over their hands trying to figure out what the fuck those things were when they pick them up in the room and then you just get fucking a load of another dude's fucking cold, thick, sticky fucking semen all over their hands. That happened a lot. We would actually have times prescribed for one another to jerk off. I would tell my roommate, I'm feeling like I need to jerk off or I'm starting to get hard. Uh, So can you leave the room and they would go to have a cigarette and I would too for them. Afghanistan has more American semen than most bathhouses in America. And we all knew it. We would laugh about it. There is something remarkable when you're shitting and showering and jerking off just a few feet away from someone who could save your life. It can bring brothers together. The Army is a pretty amazing organization. When you think about it, what 
the job that it has to do and then the conditions and standards in which it has to accomplish it is is astronomical you're asking these people from all different backgrounds and colors and creeds and economic standings and social classes and you're asking them to work together under the worst circumstances possible and one of the ways i think that we accomplish that is because we're fucking cruel we don't we don't hide who we are. We don't hide how we feel about things, even though we know we're generally ignorant or wrong. We still like uh, lashing out sometimes, and sometimes it takes in the forms of jokes. So joking about a specific racial stereotype or whatever, and then not being offended, being able to understand a little bit where that person is coming from because you haven't had a whole lot of dealings with that other person's race, and so you might have your own stereotypes about them. It creates a different sort of friendship and, and bond that isn't like that I've ever had as a civilian. That, I guess, sort of mellowed me out a little bit because you were able to make some, some amazing brothers and I don't feel as angry anymore. I don't feel as alone is probably one of the reasons why. It's because I do have these brothers now and it's because they've been able to call me a wetback or a, a spick or a beaner and I've never cared and I was able to call them whatever the fuck they are. All that stuff is great when it's working right, but when it came to Smith, we dropped the ball because he didn't have that brotherhood. He didn't have that feeling that I feel now and I felt at the time where I felt secure, I felt safe, I felt like no matter what, these guys had my back. They can say whatever they want, but I know that their fucking actions are gonna back up that oath they took. I don't think we ever once thought Smith was gay or we were attracting any sort of actual hatred of homosexuals, but it stung in a way that it can only sting when you're in a male-dominated combat field being called gay. At the time, no one was out. It might have been sanctioned by the president um, as uh, being fine, but no one admitted it, at least not in our unit. Which is interesting enough because we ended up finding out there was far more homosexuals after deployment than there was during, myself included. While I don't find males necessarily attractive, I have a certain inkling for transsexuals. So, yeah, we made fun of each other about our religion, our sexuality, the way we talked, our job performance. We would use all sort of curse words. Nigger, wetback, kike, gook. Sand nigger. There was nothing held back, which you think we would might think differently when you're saying these words to people who also have guns. But nothing was out of bounds. Smith, unfortunately, he just had the juiciest one where we could all get behind because it was so odd and so peculiar that people who you would think would have some of the most uh, professional standards in the army, Navy SEALs included, are making fun of him. So Smith, he got he got sent to a unit that was outside of our own, specifically so he was not harassed anymore, but uh, when those SEAL guys, when they found out, it, it was just as bad, if not worse, than what was with us. Pretty soon the whole FOB is asking about Smith and what he did and 
why he did it or where the video is that's uh, that's what everyone wants to know they all want to see it but my impression of smith is that he was uh, a highly narcissistic prideful person uh, like many of us are myself included and so when you've built up this character and uh, everyone knows you by this character and then suddenly you have one of these flaws it's shattering to you and so i remember the first time i met smith he was a fucking dick to me he had already been there for about six months in the unit in germany before i got there i was green as could be he tried to intimidate me in a way that i didn't find all that receptive and so i immediately didn't like him uh, he challenged me at the motor pool for some reason because I didn't have my uniform in the standard in which he thought was acceptable. He thought he was the shit. Or at least that's what he tried to impress upon us. After our year-long uh, vacation in Afghanistan, we, we returned back to Germany. And then subsequently our unit was deactivated as soon as we got back. He went to Georgia. I went to Colorado. But a few of my buddies uh, went with him to uh, Fort Benning. And that's where um, things really started uh, hitting the fan fast for him. He ends up marrying a woman who uh, had at least one other kid with another guy from our unit uh, who he never acknowledged. Smith doesn't seem at all to be bothered by that. And so he gives away his freedom and ultimately his money and everything he owns, at least 50%, when they end up divorcing a few months after they get back to the States. Then one night, um, he's drinking and he's driving. He gets pulled over and he decides to run. However, he was drinking in the car and ends up leaving the beer can he was using. So while he got away, his DNA was left on the beer and he uh, ends up being demoted, gets in trouble for drinking and driving and then running away from a scene. Shortly afterwards, he tries to commit suicide by jumping off a building. I think he ends up only breaking a few bones. And I'm not entirely sure if he ends up getting out honorably or dishonorably, but he ends up leaving the military. And he's still living now with his ex-wife, and I think now they're in Kentucky somewhere. About... A year and a half after I get out of the army, I get a phone call from a friend. Uh, he says, have you heard? I said, have I heard about what? Have you heard about Smith? No. And he says, uh, Smith's dead. He was arrested for child abuse. It wasn't sexually, but um, it was physically, and it was about to go to trial. He ends up killing himself before he has to face the consequence of his actions. And I remember getting off the phone with my friend and feeling as though I may have played a part in his ultimate demise, letting him down, because while I may not have liked Smith, the army doesn't care about my opinion. I should have still respected him as a soldier and as a human being. Frederick Nietzsche, the German philosopher, he has a quote that says, Those who fight monsters should be wary they do not become a monster in the process. For when you look into the abyss, the abyss also looks into you. And thinking about that quote, it, it sums up my, my time in Afghanistan perfectly. Because we were monsters. We were 
trained to be monsters. The doctrine from higher, the memos from Petraeus and the others, they may have believed that they were leading us to a hearts and minds mentality, but we went to Afghanistan to destroy. We weren't there to build or to create or to foster goodwill. And so when we couldn't do the things we were designed to do, we ultimately turned on each other. And unfortunately for Smith, he was a primary target. He was one of us. He was someone we should have loved and respected, not for the person, but for the uniform he wore and for the oath he swore. We failed him and we failed each other for not correcting each other when we saw him being harassed, when other people asked about him and laughed at him. We perpetuated that story so that he didn't have any hope left. He was certainly in hell. He had no one to turn to. He was far from any sort of family he could confide in. We made sure that no friends of his would feel comfortable knowing him or hanging out with him. We all let him down. I can make excuses on me being young or ignorant or arrogant, but I let him down. I let his family down because he did not come home as a full person as he may have deployed. He came back changed forever because the brothers that he had sworn to defend the country with didn't consider him a brother didn't consider him a person worth knowing or caring about. He was... He was fucked. I remember hanging up the phone and, and sitting there and looking out the window. I thought about that angry kid I was when I first joined the army. So obsessed with killing. And I remember thinking that Smith was the first person I killed. It wasn't a bad guy, it was Smith. and. I still feel that way. Ready to get bummed out? Good. Hell yeah. So, growing up as a kid, I was a huge pushover, and this led to all the other kids in elementary school bullying me pretty often. So, I tried to keep to myself as much as I could. Instead of going out to hang out with friends after school, I hung out with my mom. She was my best friend. And her means of bonding with me was trying to teach me about sex really early on. I'm nine years old, and my mom hands me these books on puberty and sexuality, and I'm, I'm leafing through them, and I'm thinking, this is all very fascinating, but I don't really care about sex, and I don't think I'm going to want to have sex for a long time. So this was my mindset transitioning into middle school, and this is the place where my self-esteem drops. 
and I witness all the other girls around me at this school blossoming into their bodies, and puberty just made me so much hairier. (laughs) I was called Gorilla Girl and Dyke and all these shitty names, so I remember walking down the hallways of this middle school, staring at my feet in this big baggy black sweatshirt because I wanted to hide my body, and I was thinking, I'm so fucking ugly, and nobody is ever going to want to love me. Nobody is ever going to want me, ever. I think this is what made Bo's attention so special when I was 12 years old. I met him in sixth grade. He was an eighth grader, so he was about three years older than me. I learned that he lived just a few houses down from me, so we would walk home from school together. And this was awesome because I learned that he was also a social outcast. He was getting bullied, so it felt really good to connect with somebody on that level. He also would tell me stories of how violent his parents were with one another. He would tell me how his mother would throw plates at his father, and the plates would crash against the wall, and Bo would be terrified. His mom also lacked the affection that he needed to feel good about himself. And you know, I had a really shitty childhood too. I witnessed my mom go through these turbulent relationships with various men that treated her terribly. Two of them killed themselves, so it felt really good to be able to relate to somebody when it came to family instability. And I was so sad the last day of sixth grade because that meant Bo is going to move on to high school and I am going to be abandoned to deal with the 7th and the 8th grade by myself. But we talked that entire summer through MySpace. That was the cool thing to do at the time. And I remember looking through his messages, and he's telling me how smart and beautiful and sophisticated I am for a 12-year-old. And that was giving me that boost of self-esteem that I desperately needed. But the messages where he's telling me how badly he wants to kiss me send these jolts of warmth and arousal throughout my entire body. Because I'm thinking, you know, I've never been kissed before, and here's this older boy that I really like telling me that he wants to be my first kiss. Holy shit! And then a few months pass, and it finally happens, where... At his house, it's late one night, and we're hanging out on his couch. We were playing video games or something, but he looks over to me, and he kisses me. And I feel his lips press against mine, and they're so smooth and warm, and I can feel his fingers crawling up my back, giving me goosebumps. And it's the best first kiss that I always, always wanted. But I had to keep it a secret because he was dating another girl at the time. Yeah, huge bummer. Eventually, some time passed, and he finally broke up with this girl to be with me. And on New Year's Eve of 2006, Bo asks me to be his girlfriend. (laughs) At this time, I'm 13 years old. I'm about to finish the eighth grade in a few months, and I'm in this relationship that I've wanted so badly. Everything feels perfect. And it starts off so perfect. We're driving around, and he's taking me out on dates to dinner because he's old enough to drive. I definitely am not. And he's calling me every night to see how my day was and to make me laugh and to tell me that he loves me unconditionally. And that feels so good 
But I can tell he is growing impatient with my lack of a desire for sex. I'm still not ready. I'm still abstinent. And he's tired of waiting for me. I remember one day we're at my house in my room and my mom's downstairs cooking dinner, totally preoccupied. And Bo and I are kissing and he keeps shoving his hands into my shirt, trying to rub my nipples or trying to creep his hands into my shorts underneath my underwear. And I shake my head no and I push his hands away, but he persists. And this becomes a commonplace practice every time we hang out. And at this same time, Bo is growing much more possessive and controlling of me. He's for some reason obsessed with maintaining my image as a mature 13-year-old that's far beyond her years. And he's dictating which friends of mine are worthy to hang out with. He's counting my calories, deciding what meals I can eat. And he hacks into my MySpace to monitor who else I'm talking to other than him. He sits me down and forces me to watch this esoteric art film called Waking Life, which I love as an adult. It's a film about existentialism and the dynamics of the human consciousness, but he was so pissed off that I could not wrap my 13-year-old mind around this. Because, you know, at this time... I loved the Pirates of the Caribbean movies. I loved my stuffed animal Hello Kitty collection. And I very recently started my period. I didn't like the same things he did, and he started to look down on me because of it. And I couldn't help but wonder, why is this happening? What happened to all the compliments about how smart I am for my age? Will I ever be good enough for Bo like I once was? And my nightly phone calls I once received turned into nightly phone arguments about insignificant stuff I did that day to piss him off. And during these calls, he's crying for hours, having severe panic attacks. And he recently tells me that he is diagnosed as bipolar, so he's constantly switching medications and mixing these medications with the drugs he was using for fun. And this destroys his mental stability immediately. So for the remainder of the eighth grade, I felt wholly responsible for his mental health. So summer break hits, and he insists on doing absolutely everything together. And I feel this dread creep up inside my body every time that he touches me, and I'm expected to touch him back. I remember going over to his house early in the summer. He gives me my first orgasm. And I'm lying on his bed. He has these soft navy blue sheets. And he's sliding off my clothes. And he's insisting on rubbing my clitoris. And I'm shaking my head, no, I'm not ready. But then it happens. My first orgasm. I, I feel so wet and euphoric. And that feeling is surging throughout my whole body, but I feel so ashamed of it because I'm thinking, I'm too ugly, too gross, and way too young to be doing this. And that's the thought that I have every time this happens. One time I come over because, you see, tentatively we planned the night before that we were going to have alone time, but since the time came, I was not ready. So 
I come over and I sit on the couch and I'm nervous because I tell him, I don't feel like having sex today. And he crosses his arms and he pouts his lips and he shoots this glare over at me that I know so well. You knew we were planning this, Rochelle. Why are you changing the plan? You knew this is what we were doing today. My heart and my mind race and I feel these deep pangs of guilt stab at my chest and I'm sorry, I, I just, I don't feel sexual today. I'm really, really sorry, I'm sorry. And he stares me dead in the eyes and tells me something that I will never forget. He looks at me and he tells me, Rochelle, men are going to expect to have sex with you no matter what, so you might as well start doing it now. And he storms out of the living room, into the computer room, expecting me to follow. And my stomach feels like it's dropped on the floor and my heart feels broken because why is this happening? Why are relationships like this? I knew they were hard, but I didn't realize they were this hard. I didn't know that you had to feel this much pain, but I absolutely believed this lie that he told me. I believed that it was my responsibility, no matter what, to sexually satisfy him. So our alone time became more frequent out of fear of his anger. And I would try to rationalize this and I would tell myself, think strategically about this, Rochelle. Pretend you're playing emotional chess with Bo. Just don't listen to your emotions because remember at the end of the day, a sexually satisfied Bo makes the mean Bo go away, even for just a little while. I would make him come and I would lick him and rub him and kiss him wherever he wanted. And while this happened, I left my body. And if he insisted on shoving his fingers inside of me and slobbering on my clitoris, I would let him arouse my body to orgasm, but I mentally departed from the present because it was the only way to deal with it. I remember another hot summer day, he presents to me this homemade lubricant he made, and I'm terrified because I don't know how that's going to feel, but he tells me, no, 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 it's okay, it's natural, and it's going to make our alone time even better. Fine. So we go to the park, and he lays down a blanket, and he removes my clothes, and he begins to rub a bit of the mystery cream inside of my vagina. And moments later, it burns, and it burns so fucking badly, and it feels like my vagina is swollen, and I'm panicking, and I tell him, my vagina's burning, Bo, it hurts. And to this, he grows very upset, and he begins to cry. I ruined this. I ruined the moment. I ruined the moment. I ruined it. I'm sorry. I ruined it. I ruined it. And now I have to calm him down. So as I'm rubbing the lubricant off of my vagina, I'm trying so hard to make him feel better. It's okay. Really? Really? It's okay. I'm really... I'm sorry. I love you. I really love you. It's okay. Please. It's okay. It's not your fault. It's okay. And I rub it off and... He asks me if he still wants to do our alone time, and I say, no, my vagina hurts. And he cries harder, and I have to comfort him for the remainder of the night. So our relationship reaches a boiling point in the middle of the summer. 
He's calling me every single day, dozens and dozens of times, insisting that we do absolutely everything together. And at this time, my mom bought me a plane ticket to Ohio to visit my family because, you see, my eight-year-old cousin passed away the winter before, and I wanted to go visit her grave. Bo knew this. He knew that I would be gone for two weeks. So the day before my trip, he insists that I come over for extensive alone time. And my body fills with dread, even at the thought of it. But I know I have to go over, because if I don't go over, he's just going to run up to my house anyway and demand I come over. I can't get away. And it's just much easier to comply with his orders. So I walk down the street, and I walk into his house, and immediately he guides me into his bedroom. And he slides off my clothes, and I begin to dissociate from my body, preparing to do the sexual chores expected of me that day. So I start jerking him off. My hand is so exhausted from doing it this time, and it's taking particularly long. And while this is happening, I'm thinking of all the cruel jokes he would tell his friends about the ways that I give hand jobs and blow jobs. And he would tell me repetitively that his ex-girlfriend put his entire dick inside of her mouth, unlike me. And he thought this was funny. So I'm stewing in all these thoughts, And he finally comes, thank God, because that means we're not going to fight about it. So we're lying down, and I realize my phone is buzzing. And so I lean over the side of the bed, and I check it, and it's dozens of missed calls from my mom, text messages asking where I am. She's worried. She wants to have dinner with me before I leave town. With great hesitation, I turn to Bo, and I tell him, I have to go. My mom wants me home. I'm really sorry. And his lazy post-orgasm eyes evolve into this fucking glare that I'm so familiar with. Why do you have to leave right now, Rochelle? You know we're cuddling. The only way that we're going to become closer and feel like we're one is if we cuddle after we touch each other. And my mind goes blank and... I'm trying to create a defense, but all I can say is, I'm really, really sorry. I, I, my mom wants me home. I don't know. I'm really sorry. And he gets really angry in a way that I have not seen. And he raises his voice and tells me, Rochelle, this fucking moment, you always ruin moments like this because you're cold and you're calloused and you're unable to be intimate with other people. And I'm terrified at this point. I don't understand why he's so angry. So I grab my clothes from the ground, and I start to walk out of the room to get changed in the next room. As I'm walking out, I realize that there's objects being thrown at me. And I look over my left shoulder to see a large alarm clock aimed for my head. Luckily, I dodge it. It only hits my ankle. At this point, I'm shaking, and I run into the next room, which is his mother's room. And I'm cowering in the corner, and I'm hastily trying to put on my panties and my shorts, and he storms in, and he's still naked. And we're staring at each other. And he's staring at me like he's trying to suck away my fucking soul with his eyes, and I feel the hatred emanating from his body. And in his right hand, he has a handful of necklaces that I wore to his house that day that I must have left in his bedroom. 
one of which is my favorite necklace in the entire world. It's the Pirates of the Caribbean necklace, the one with the Aztec gold medallion from the first film. So he grabs these necklaces, and he begins ripping them apart into little pieces, and he begins throwing them at my body as hard as he can. And I try to cover my face as all of these plastic and metal bits hit my body, and the gold medallion hurts as it hits my chest. At this point, my senses are warped, and I have tunnel vision, and I can see that he's screaming something at me very loudly, but I hear nothing. All I can think is, I'm being attacked right now, and I have to get out of here. And so I finally snap, and I grab the medallion, and I grab my shirt from the floor, and I run past him. And I run down the stairs, and I run out the front door, slipping on my shirt just in time. And I'm running up the street, and coincidentally, my mom is driving down at the same time. So I jump in her car, and I'm shaking, and I'm crying, and my heart and my thoughts are racing because what Bo's parents once did to each other, he's starting to do to me now. And from that point on until late into the night, Bo is calling me over and over and over and over again. So I have to sit down on my bed with my mom. She's holding my hand. And over the phone, I tell him, we can't be together anymore. And the anguished screams I hear on the other line are like nothing I've ever heard before. And all he can say is, I'm going to fucking kill myself. 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 And I can't deal with it anymore. And I hang up. And I turn off my phone for the rest of the night. The next day, I go to Ohio to visit my family. And he calls me over and over and over again to harass me, even though he knows I'm there to mourn the death of my cousin. When I come back, he begins to stalk me. I remember hiding at my friend's house, begging her mom not to tell him where I am if he ends up coming to the door. And he does. And she does lie. Despite breaking up with him, I could not get away. We dated on and off for many years after that. Because despite how much he hurt me, I really adored him. And I never dated anybody else before. And the relationships I witnessed my mom go through were similar, so how would I know any better? We went to the same high school for four years after that. We had the same friend group throughout college. And it wasn't until I moved to Texas three years ago that I finally got away from him. <laughs> Thank you. But it still sucks, because we still have 132 mutual friends on Facebook, <laughs> many of which are friends and family. But I think back on it, and I think about how Bo was the first person to teach me about the concept of unconditional love. And he framed it simply as, you know you love somebody, like really love somebody, if you stick with them through the tough times. You learn to embrace your lover's good side as passionately as you do their bad side. And you know, he's not wrong, but it took me years to figure out other important aspects of unconditional love, like having unconditional mutual respect to accompany that love, or... 
or establishing firm boundaries and knowing what consent looks like and being able to monitor the balance of good and bad in the relationship. Thank you so much. That is all for this week's episode, folks. That was Rochelle King. We just heard from, and this is Passion Pit. Behind me now, I am going to read a long list of places that we're going to be showing up soon on March 23rd. We are at the Bell House in Brooklyn. That's going to be a hell of a show. On March 24th, we are at the Nerdist Showroom in Los Angeles. And then there's our March 26th show, in Washington, D.C. On April 27th, we're in Vancouver, Canada. The theme is overwhelmed. We're still taking pitches for that one. On April 28th, we're in Seattle. On April 30th, we're in Portland. The Seattle theme is enraged. The Portland theme is despair. We are still taking pitches for those. On Sunday, May 15th, we are in Boston, We're not 100% confirmed on that one yet, but it can't hurt to pitch us. The theme is respect. On May 20th, we have a very special show at the Bell House. It's for NYC PodFest, and it's going to be in honor of the new book about the state, my old sketch comedy group. So we're hoping to have a few members of the state there plus friends like Janine Garofalo, Craig Wedren, Zach Orth, maybe 80 Miles. I don't know. We're That's still coming together. That's May 20th. Big show at the Bell House in honor of the state's new book. Go to nycpodfest.com for more on that. On May 21st, we're in Minneapolis, Minnesota. The theme is repugnant, and we're still taking pitches for that. In June, we may be coming to Philadelphia with the theme Disgusted and Pittsburgh with the theme Mesmerized. On June 25th, St. Louis, Missouri. The theme is Worried. On July 8th, we will be back in San Francisco, California with the theme Resonant. Now, in order to pitch us, just go to the submissions page at risk-show.com. There's plenty of helpful tips there. There's a video you can watch where I kind of advise you on how to go about it. All the themes are listed there. That's risk-show.com slash submissions. Don't forget, if you want to find out about our storytelling training, 
one-on-one, over Skype, for corporate situations or in-person workshops, just go to thestorystudio.org. There's plenty to learn there. And finally, if you love what we do and you'd like to help us out, it takes a lot to keep this machine running. You can support us at the Support Us page at risk-show.com. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk. like really love somebody if you stick with them through the tough times. You learn to embrace your lover's side as passionately as you do. Oh, brain fart. You learn to love your lover as much. Fuck, I was doing so good. You learn to embrace your lover's good side as passionately as you do their bad side. And you know...